getting excited about this because yeah. it must be <laughs> an incredible world of difference for a business officer who's gone through, let's say, 10 years of cutting budgets and uh, deficits and all of that to think of a scenario where there's actually a surplus of money um, for the business. That's Michael Fullen, an internationally recognized authority on education it reform. It's incredibly exciting to have gone through cutting budget budgets and always being the person that people are going to to find money and always back against the wall compared to there's a uh, there's an amount of money here uh, to be invested in innovative things and that's the context. How do I still be a, a, a very responsible spender of money, but how do we now we have some elbow room actually to invest money that gives yield. And if you can get that phenomenon going with business officers and superintendents working together on that issue, you will get tremendous innovation, I think. So this moment we're in, any way you slice it, there's a lot of additional funding from the federal and state governments pouring into school districts. There's also a growing interest, a movement perhaps, to connect this influx of new money and the disruption caused by the pandemic to bring about a more transformational change to our public school systems. How does resource equity intersect with this unique moment we're in? How do we connect this to a larger conversation about reimagining and transforming our schools? I'm Jason Willis. These topics and more are coming up in this episode of Budgeting for Educational Equity, our series presented by Casbo and Westhead. These are hard problems because equity is a hard issue. Michael Fullen is an author, researcher, advisor to policymakers and local leaders, as is his colleague Joanne Quinn. They've both served in leadership roles at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Both have advised school systems in various countries and states, including significant work in California. They've co-authored several books and papers, including their most recent paper, The Right Drivers for Whole System Success. Michael and Joanne joined me for a conversation back in the late spring, and from the moment that conversation started, their insights and ideas flowed generously. So I'm, I'm thinking the shift financially should be, uh, and I don't know how to do this, but this is something to work on, is can you, um, uh, let's say, put it, let me put it a couple of ways, the advocates push for usually for policy to prevent misuse of money or better use of money, but policy is always an adoption phenomenon, not an implementation one. It's getting it on the books, mm-hmm. and, then there, and then the slippage is after that. And so if you change the mindset and said, we're not just this time interested in in the equity of input and and struggling around that, but how can the money be used in a way that covers what it should cover and at the same time be tied into some notion of progress, a greater equality, in other words. On some things that haven't been done before, like this I'm just talking about, which is very complex, I'm not saying there's a slam dunk way of doing it. But I'm saying you've deliberately set out to say this time, can we innovate or experiment or figure out how to, how to use this opportunity to really uh, get the mindset going and the action going on actual progress and be preoccupied by that. And in a very practical way, um, not just through the lens of equity, but through the lens of learning 
Uh, we just did a little four-page paper that. We That's Joanne out. Quinn. As I mentioned, she's also researcher, consultant, author, and educator. She's worked with and advised school systems in California and throughout the world. Because our fear is that, especially with gobs of money, it will be spent supposedly for equity on solutions that we think are the wrong ones, remedial solutions, you know, more of the stuff that hasn't worked for the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. Uh, just longer and louder. And that then we would lose all those students uh, because they're already feeling behind and this will just exacerbate that kind of situation. So we talked more from a practical point, regardless of how much funding you have, what should you be doing with it? And we have to focus on where kids are, what do they need? How do we address those learning needs? The first ones will be the well-being needs, then assessing their learning, but not by testing them to death, but in a way that helps them accelerate that learning and then providing you know, some authentic learning for them. Yeah, I love the way that you guys are framing this this conversation. And as I'm thinking this through, you're really kind of identifying that you know, at the intersection of returning to school and an, a new and innovative way to think about schooling mm-hmm. comes this extraordinary opportunity for us to think about the allocation of these resources. And I'm wondering, I want to throw a quote in front of you and just get your kind of re- reaction to it. It came from uh, a colleague of mine earlier today, and they said, everyone is so anxious to get back to normal that we may forget that normal wasn't good enough for our most underserved students. Right. Absolutely. It, it wasn't cutting it then, so it's not going to do, do any better job just because there's more money. The evidence is the majority of, before this is, let's go December 2019, pre-COVID. The mm-hmm. evidence in December 2019 was the majority of students uh, were, not, were not engaged. The majority, like uh, the some of the research that the Stanford Adolescent Center has done, shows that it's about 24 percent of, let's say, year 11 and 12 students that are really have a sense of purpose. And so you get a, you get really this kind of uh, uh, unproductive system drifting along. And that the only, I mean, the one good thing that COVID did was turn it upside down in a way that now now it's possible to just take advantage of that uh, discombobulation to change it. All of which brings us back to now, this moment. There are billions of additional dollars headed to school districts, albeit most are one time in nature. We won't get into the specific pots and timelines and rules for that new funding. That information and guidance is out there from organizations like CASBO, WestEd and others. The possibilities for using these funds to innovate, to address inequities are truly exciting, but not so simple. We all know that substantial change in our school systems typically comes with a high degree of difficulty and sometimes feel like trying to execute a quadruple somersault from a diving platform. School business officials especially may find themselves caught up in this tension, on the one hand focused on fulfilling their important traditional role of ensuring responsible budgeting, accounting for the appropriate use of funds, thinking about the fiscal health of the school district, while also being presented with an opportunity to help their districts, 
and teams think and act in new ways that can be sustained over time. So I think that, you know, the edge to put on this is to say, is it possible to have responsible accountability financially and innovation at the same time? And I think the answer is yes. There are some districts which have been really great at success and they've used their money well. We can learn from them more. But I think the notion that you reassure people that money can be accounted for, but there also has to be a spirit of uh, investment of uh, resources that really gets results via equity investment. So your statement there about the innovation, I mean, it's time to be innovative as we get this funding because we know how kids learn and we know how to help them learn more effectively. And it isn't by boring them to tears. Uh, so that if, as we come back, what would I do? You, you'd work on the relationships, students and teachers, um, students and other students as they come back. You'd work on those authentic learning experiences that I was talking about that really engage them. And then you backfill as needed for the skill development, but you at least have them engaged because they're doing something that makes sense to them. And then you really put in a strong connection there with communities, with families, with other agencies and partnerships to connect so that we are a concerted whole, you know, collectively working towards helping these students. Yeah, pull that apart for me, Joanne. I think that that's a great point you're, you're driving home. So help us think that through. Like, how would you walk practitioners through those set of steps to kind of address, as you're saying, the entire design of the system, but also ensuring that, you know, students that have been left behind are getting what they need through this opportunity? I think there's two sides to that. The one side that you mentioned is the capacity. So you need the capacity of the people that are working with these young people to understand how to assess where kids are, how to pick them up from where they are and how to move them forward. Mm -hmm. So there's that, that whole knowledge base and skill base on behalf of the adults that are working there. Um, and with any group, I, I'm not sure whether you're talking about groups and we think that they all go to this school, so we have to do something for that school. My experience, you know, as a teacher and a principal and a superintendent is in any grouping that you get, we have a whole range of needs of students. Some underserved in certain ways and some underserved in other ways. So as I said, it's a capacity to figure out what do they need and then to assemble whatever supports will make a difference for those kids. So while a policy sounds good to an advocacy group, it's only as good as the people that are implementing it on the ground. So that if the school-based folks don't know a different way of serving those needs, it won't make any difference what the policy says. It's not about adopting something. No one's going to say, let's not serve these kids, but it's about an implementation. What's the best way to serve them? so that they become their best. Yeah. Just let's continue this a little bit. Uh, um, because as I said before, I don't think the, uh, on a big scale, this has been done before. So it's not like uh, people know how to do it. Let's just do it. But if you, if you think about our, our big breakthrough is linking well-being and learning as the same thing as feeding on each other. And not, we don't mean 
social emotional learning bolted on, we mean it's actually integrated around uh, purpose and meaning and making contribution. Uh, so if you start to think that through and look at it, it probably is more costly to pay good attention to well-being and learning than it is to deliver a lesson. More costly. Uh, it takes more time than that. So, so when I mean innovative use of money, it would be for people, teachers who we know what they're doing because we're, we're working with a lot of them. And I think it's this uh, looking at what is uh, a, a qualitatively more powerful learning experience for the underserved that would cost a little bit more money, but it's not outrageous. It's just money that allows you to do things that you weren't able to do before. And the yield for that money is quite high because the strategy is as high impact. Uh, so I think you, you want, I want to be able to say it costs a little more money wisely invested, but the yield for the first time is quite substantial. Yeah, I mean, the concept, Michael, that you're putting on the table is, I mean, it's like we've referred to it in the in the field loosely as a return on investment. I think yeah. some in the sector have been very weary of using that terminology because of its too close a reference to the corporate and business sector. Mm -hmm. But the way that you describe that it is like the, the point still stands that you may need to invest a little yeah. bit more up front if what you are producing on the back end, the yield or the outcome, the advancement of students' achievement, however we define that, is greater in the longer term. In fact, the, the, the research has become more and more clear, certainly in American public education, that when we are investing those additional resources for students that are from low-income backgrounds or English learners or students with disabilities, that those yields are greater that they, they get closer to achieving the equality of outcome uh, that we were talking a little bit about earlier. So there is some, some evidence, some path that we can start to walk down that would uh, continue to kind of build out what you're saying there, Michael. So yeah, I think so. I think, I think that, well, the, some of the economic analysis around early learning has, has shown that, that the yield is considerable because so much more would have been spent had you not attended to it a good economist with a social development focus would be able to set out the kind of model that we're talking about and, uh, and that requires some of that technical thinking. So I, I really keep wanting to push. This is a time not for learning how to spend money quantitatively better, but really a time to think of resources, including money, differently. Mm -hmm. And therefore, because it's so different, we've got to we've got to have some strands that are, uh, I guess, let's say, developmental, not just solving the whole problem, but giving us new insights that might have big leverage. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on that strand, Michael, and I, I in particular am like reminded of the experience that certainly some of the practitioners that I've been speaking with in California have been concerned with. It seems like they are just kind of pressed to the max, like every day is like a set of decisions they need to make. There's like a sense of urgency, right? Of just, we need to get kids back and we need to like recover what we lost, right? And, and it seems like the some of the framing here is driving behavior that we may not want to see relative to what the two of you are saying. And so talk a bit about 
how you see, like, what would be your advice to practitioners that are facing the urgency of the board and the urgency of the community to kind of get things back in place, but also creating the space for what you're talking about, which is really around planning and being thoughtful and more developmental in how you're recreating the experience for students in public education. There's, there's two, two big tensions right now and about going back. One is this huge press to make, you know, make up for the loss. And that's the negative thing we've talked about. And there's huge groundswell to do that. But I found, we found an equal number of uh, superintendents and school principals who say, there's no way we want to go back the way it was. They're, they're saying that spontaneously. We're not prompting them. Uh, and so you get this uprising of people who say, there's no damn way we're going to go back. And, but then you get this other pressure coming from usually a little higher up saying, you better get back. So both of those are happening now. And uh, I'm, I'm um, impressed by the intensity of the, uh, the feelings that principals and teachers have and, and, and some superintendents that you're not going to force us to go back. We're not going to do that because we want to make do something differently. And that, that's the positive scenario that I think we have to attach the, the financial role to and see what it looks like. And I think in a practical sense, everyone has realized that the well-being has risen to the top. It, that's not first on everybody's list in the past, but we realize that the kids have suffered from the lack of relationships or just... Um, the inequity of their access to learning in any way. So that as they come back to face-to-face -face learning, the first thing is building that sense of, as I mentioned before, the relationships, the sense of trust, that sense of belonging, that sense that I can learn here. And it isn't all airy-fairy. If I can go back to a bit earlier, the same thing happened when we put in a full-day um, kindergarten for uh, four- and five-year-olds. And this is something that occurred in Canada. We researched that. And because it was a play-based inquiry model, it wasn't a program to just teach them to read earlier. It was to build their language skills, their communication skills, their connection skills, their worldviews in, in very intentional ways that by the time they got to grade one, 95% of them are reading. And the number of referrals to special ed were way down from what we had seen in previous years. And this was a large scale because it was across our whole province. So you can get some of those outcomes differently using a different kind of thinking about what learning should be. So it wasn't, let's just recreate grade one and we'll start doing that for three and a half year olds. It was what kind of learning would be best. And that's how that was approached. I'm curious, like your point about the well-being of students, how that has kind of skyrocketed to the front of people's consciousness around how we need to be thinking about serving our students in schools and thinking about this from a resourcing perspective and kind of returning to this, you know, equitable distribution of, of resources. To your mind, how does that show up? Like how should practitioners think about resourcing those kinds of new approaches for students, building the capacity of either existing staff or how they partner to bring in other professionals to support that work? My personal bias is you build the capacity of people to do this well. 
um, you don't farm it out. It's not like we're going to do social emotional learning on Tuesdays or we're going to buy a program because uh, that's back to the old thinking. Um, what Michael said earlier, we've embedded the whole notion of well-being inside what we call our global competency so that um, it permeates everything kids are doing because as a teacher, you're intentionally building those skills that they need in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. Now, in populations that are very underserved, you may need some additional staffing because you may need specialized support services, uh, specialized counselors. But that's specific. I think that needs to be problem solved at the local level. I don't think that's the kind of blanket thing that one should do personally. Um, mm -hmm. You need to look at your kids and say, if we want them all to be successful, what are they going to need to do that? Instead of saying, here's a program, let's put it in every school. If I was a superintendent, I would get together with principals and teachers and maybe a cross section and say, if this is what our kids are saying they need, so you'd have a way to gather that data, but these sorts of things, how do we make that happen? Instead of saying, well, you're all going to get a childcare worker. That's a, that's a policy type solution that is well used in some schools and terribly used in others. So I think it, what is it that you need? And then you identify that and then you figure out how can we put that package together? Mm -hmm. I know that's not an easy solution. It's much easier if you can just say, well, everybody's going to get four new uh, FTEs and they can use them in a certain way. I don't think that's the best way. We don't see those solutions because people are not, uh, they're not working on the solution systematically, just uncovering the needs. But you can, you can almost taste this kind of agenda by working with them and, and you could cost it out and it would cost less than using the money differently, I'm pretty sure, and the yield would be higher. So what I'm really kind of stuck on right now is we are getting this kind of energy, this natural energy to pay attention to well-being, but we're not yet at the stage of uh, systematically developing some solutions that can be costed and learned from and then built upon. That strikes me, Michael, as something that, that potentially, you know, a chief business officer in California could really latch on to. Yeah. So here, here they are in their typical role of taking on, you know, accounting for uh, what's happening with the funds in the system, ensuring financial health of the school system. Part of what I hear you promoting is potentially pushing their role a, a bit beyond that, right? To, to think not just about the fiscal health of the system, but also to think about how those dollars are translating into more of these innovative programs that are promoting well-being. I mean, what would you say to a chief business officer that's like, okay, this sounds like a good idea. Where do I go next? What do I do next to kind of step into this conversation? The question you just raised says to me, business officials and individuals and combinations probably have a lot of innovative ideas. Some of them are stodgy, but if you actually would engage them into innovation thinking, if you had extra resources, how would you use them? And they'd have to be part of a, a team with good academic leaders. So I bet 
that you could latch on to the business officials and good superintendents combination and say, if we were to involve you and your thinking into the best innovative ideas to do some of this stuff, what could we come up with? I think that's the route. Use their expertise because they probably have some of it and use some of it. And they probably are frustrated in, in some respects at not being able to innovate because they've always been blamed for or praised for saving money. In California, especially when we've worked with school districts, we want to work with the whole leadership team. So it's everybody, including facilities, it's business, it's all of them. Mm -hmm. And when they're part of the understanding and decision-making around, you know, how do kids learn best? What do we need to be doing? What are we doing? They find, as Michael said, pretty creative ways to help you. Um, but often they're shunted to the side as bean counters. And, you know, mine used to always say, my answer is always no, um, mm -hmm. until you help them understand, you know, what was at stake. And then they were, had very creative solutions to help you get to where you needed to go. We've had the chance to hear from education reform experts, Joanne Quinn and Michael Fullen. Before wrapping up, I wanted a chance to run some of their perspectives and ideas through a sort of school business reality check. So we've got Tasha Davenport, CEO and Executive Director of Casbo here. Hi, Tasha. Hey, Jason. So Tasha, you had a chance to listen to Michael and Joanne. What are some of your top line reactions or takeaways from what you heard? Well, I certainly uh, learned from the conversation, and so I appreciate the opportunity to, to hear from those experts. I definitely appreciated the balance between the urgency, crisis recovery to more long-term thoughtful planning. And I know there's a lot of attention on the crisis piece. My mm -hmm. mindset is really on that long-term. Mm. Uh, how do we look at the work that we're doing with a 20-year return on investment, a 20-year yield, not year over year. And mm -hmm. so I think that that urgency to recover balanced with the long term, um, the work that we need to be doing right now is around the long term. You know, one of the things you said, Michael had mentioned this idea about yield or return on investment. And that's a term that you know, even going back to when I came into public education, kind of folks tended to shy away from. But I don't know, maybe we should lean more into it and was just curious, like, what, what do you think about that? What, where do you think we should go with that? I absolutely agree. Mm. I think that ROI is uh, just by definition, what is the return on the investments that we're making? And if we're going to put time and thought and energy into these, you know, innovations and investments, we'd better darn well be able to have a very high expectation of ourselves and what those investments are going to, to gain for our students. And so, you know, when you think about ROI, it's not just in programs and supports, it's the return on investment for a productive human in society. It's a return on almost human capacity. And we've got that data. We don't look at it maybe in education. We kind of anecdotally, but what is the cost of not doing this on increases in prison populations? What is the cost of not providing the right level of supports in, it, in 
and services to the students that need it most. That that is a problem that we can affect that is not included in our current ROI. Yeah. No. <laughs> so I, I love lean into yeah, it. Yeah. No, it's great. <laughs> and, well, and the, the and it connects directly to what you were saying before about we should be thinking about the investments we're making now in getting a yield in 20 years because those students that are in our elementary schools today will be those adults that are coming out of college and going into society and working professionally. And that just seems to connect really well with some of these other statistics we look at in terms of you know, productivity, contributions as a citizen, so on and so forth. And so one of the other things I wanted to pick up on, Tasha, you had talked about is how, how should practitioners, like current chief business officers, think about what they're doing now? Like, how would their, in your mind, behavior change if they're really trying to latch on to this idea of yield or return in, of investment over the long term? First is a genuine curiosity around the customers and the students that they serve. I, I come from corporate, so I'm always going to yep. say customers, yep. students, right? The students that they serve genuinely wanting to understand beyond those demographic buckets, what do we have? That coupled with early collaboration and interaction with the instructional side, the mental health groups, the, the groups serving the communities and homeless population, early interaction. Not, okay, now what do you need? Let me find the money. If you have curiosity and a solid understanding of what the true issues are, you're going to create a better solution with those that you're collaborating with. And so this whole, you know, kind of budgeting for equity, if you understand the issue, you've heard the different solutions, you've seen what is successful, then as the CBO, you're saying, wow, we've proven with data and insight that that works, let's invest more in that. And we also heard that the needs of this population are much different. And you came up with these three viable solutions. Let me see what we can do to fund one of those right now, maybe one coming in in a year, maybe all three of them now. Let me be strategic about these dollars Mm -hmm. and when and how we invest them to support what we all know to be a problem that is being resolved with this strategy. So very consultative. Uh, They always have to manage responsibly the budgets and the buckets of money. That's a given. Yeah, confounding. That's a given. That's and what if, they have. And if yeah. that's what you're interested in doing, and that's all you're interested in doing, then I think that A, you're going to sell the profession of a CBO short. But I think that is what maybe is under leveraged is that you're really selling the investment in those solutions short. If, if you're just moving money from, from what, one bucket or another, um, you're probably really good at that, but you're not adding value to this conversation. Yeah. And I think so the frame you're using, Tasha, I think is really also putting on the table this idea that a chief business officer in a school district in California and a charter school in California really does sit at the intersection of understanding how best to leverage those resources relative to what their colleagues are saying are the best investments and how to do that with quality and creating that quality programming. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a 
practical response to some of the needs that we're seeing coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, being a former CBO, I never had the chance to stare at a funding increase from the state and federal government at 70% of my annual per pupil spend. But that is now the reality for thousands of CBOs in California. And just as you think about, kind of reflect on our conversation that we're having, what do, what do we say? I mean, this is a circumstance that no CBO ever, as far as I can understand in California, has ever gone through. Like, what are the things that we can do collectively, that we can do for each other, that kind of help those CBOs be really effective in their work with these this, this amazing amount of one-time resources? I always tend to start with data and insight. So first, get data and insight as a strategic asset. And then you decide what, based on this, what do we know has worked? Obviously, many things have worked. And if that's more investment in, if it is teachers, or you know, if it is their knowledge and their capacity, and if that has proven to work, then by gosh, do more of that. But also arrive at the conversation and, and this takes relationship building and trust, willing to challenge just spending more in buckets of money that mm. don't work. How do we strategically abandon those things and know that that's the right decision and yeah. be supported in that decision? That's hard. It's almost like in some way, like you have to get permission from your boss that like I can go into this conversation and I can give up this resource and try a different way. But like the door you're opening, I think is really critical. I mean, particularly for the public in general with the pandemic and distance learning. I think many parents are like, I'm kind of done with the traditional way that we've done K-12. And so we kind of owe it to the sector and we owe it to kids to really think outside of the box. And I think that's one way to kind of think about the writ large taxpayers dollar and how we're doing the best with those on behalf of kids. But yeah, I well, and we don't, we, we have not established the maybe the word freedom, or even time to have those conversations. It the gun has gone off, everyone's trying to figure out yeah. how to spend this money. And I guarantee you without a strategy that is more cohesive, understanding what's worked and what hasn't and developing a strategy that reaches across all those areas we're not going to get there yeah we there's no right now there's no time so i feel like that that needs to be the next year like needs this to is be, the, this is it frankly it there is you understand as a cbo the level of bureaucracy and regulations and rules, it is crippling. It has come to a grinding halt. Yeah. And so it takes the whole system going, give us a minute. We're, we're going to continue. To serve. At this point, right, we have all this money. Yes, be sure to get kids back in school, but give us a minute to be thoughtful, establish relationships, have meaningful conversations, and say, let's try these three things based on data that are interagency yep. to support these students. Did it work? Now let's do more. Yeah. Now let's replicate. Yeah. No, now yeah. let's expand. It's, it is like I was saying this to a group of CBOs last week. This is the dialectic that you are now responsible to hold. It's like the urgency of the moment to address like the public, the legislature, those like direct and urgent needs, 
but also to hold the long term. Like you have to be able to figure out a way to transform the system that results in something different from what people experienced over the pandemic and even before that. I think it's a, yeah. And they can't, they can't do it from, it can't be the, it certainly can't be the CBO budgeting for equity. You know what I mean? Like, you know that, right? There are, there are certain practices that we can hold and, and have, and, and we're certainly gearing up to help train on innovation and, and design and things like that. But we need time for a minute. And, and frankly, we need some, we need a pause on some of the, honestly, legislation and regulation. It, yeah. it has to take all. It can't just be over here, yeah. this group's problem. G- give us a minute. We've taken a few extra minutes in this episode to reflect on the crucial circumstance that our schools and communities face. With schools reopening for in-person instruction soon, a windfall of additional one-time funding, and opportunities to innovate. But also, as system leaders, we see this key need to create more space and time to think, plan, and be thoughtful as we approach resource allocation to improve our public education systems. Many thanks to Michael Fullen, Joanne Quinn, and Tasha Davenport for sharing their valuable insights. As our series continues, we welcome your comments, ideas, and questions. Feel free to connect with us on Twitter at Budget for Ed Equity. That's Budget, the number four, Ed Equity. Budgeting for Educational Equity is presented by Casbo and Westhead. This series is also made possible by the generous support of the Sobrato Family Foundation. Our series is written and produced by Paul Richman and by me, Jason Willis. Sound, mixing, and original music are by Tommy Dunbar. John Diaz develops our related written materials. Be sure to check those out online and in our show notes. And please, if you find the podcast helpful, spread the word. We'll see you out there.